Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, hello, hello. I hope you're well. Welcome to the show. I hope you're doing Doing well, enjoyed a bit. There's something of a heat wave creeping. Let's not jinx it. The last few weeks have been disastrous, I would say, on the weather front. And I think we deserve better than that after what we've gone through. So I've been, I would say, irrationally angry about it. But it's looking, it's looking good on that particular front, which is about all we have at the moment to salvage. Now, this week, the second most important figure in the British government, declared that that government had sent tens of thousands of people to their graves. Now, I think we could, I think if there's a consensus, a broad consensus about the most basic function of any government, it is, I, I think keeping its own people alive would be the most basic elementary function of any government. And as Dominic Cummings, and I think we should treat him as two things, as a super whistleblower, but as a confessor, because as he himself confessed, he himself was part of the reason that this calamity, the worst disaster since World War II, has unfolded in this country now for well over a year. Tens of thousands of people sent unnecessarily to their graves in one of the worst death tolls, of course, on the face of the earth. Now, we we heard element, elements, I suppose, which were already in the public domain, partly they ended up situated within a Tory psychodrama, but there were details as well which were important, which were not in the public domain. Our Prime Minister dismissed COVID-19 repeatedly as simply being swine flu. He wanted Chris Whitty to inject him with it on national television to prove it wasn't harmful. This was, of course, before he was himself hospitalised and sent to intensive care. He regretted the first lockdown because of the damage to the economy. He called for the bodies to pile high rather than call another lockdown. He said it was only killing 80-year-olds. Not true, but also being 80 years old in a country like this is not supposed to be a death sentence. Our health secretary, Matt Hancock, according to Dominic Cummings, repeatedly lied, including about discharging vulnerable patients to care homes without them being tested, seeding the virus in a sector where it spread like wildfire and killed, and this is not an exaggeration, this is a factual statistic, it killed one in every 14 care home residents, COVID-19, in the first three months of the pandemic alone. Now, let's just see, to begin with, how Dominic Cummings apologised for what he and his government did to this country. The truth is that senior ministers, senior officials, senior advisers like me fell disastrously short of the standards that the public has a right to expect of its government in a crisis like this. When the public needed us most, the government failed. And I'd like to say to all the families of those who, uh, who died unnecessarily how sorry I am for the mistakes that were made and for my own mistakes. Alas, apologies don't bring the dead back. Now, here's the scene he set about how catastrophically ill-prepared this country was for, again, the greatest catastrophe since World War II. So essentially what's happening at this point is 
Um, we're thinking, what do we do on this? At this point, the second most powerful official in the country, Helen McNamara, is the Deputy Cabinet Secretary. She walked into the office while we're looking at this whiteboard. She says, I've just been talking to the official, Mark Sweeney, who is in charge of coordinating with the Department for Health. He said, quote, I've been told for years that there is a whole plan for this. There is no plan. We're in huge trouble. I've come through here, to Helen McNamara said, I've come through here to the Prime Minister's office to tell you all, quote, I think we are absolutely fucked. I think this country is heading for a disaster. I think we're going to kill thousands of people. As soon as I've been told this, I've come through to see you. It seems from the conversation you're having that that's correct. Well, of course, that was a prescient warning because one in every 443 people in this country have died because of COVID-19 since the crisis began. We were absolutely F-U-C-K-E-D. With terrible consequences, many people, of course, watching this or listening to this have lost their relatives, myself included. Now, what were the consequences? A death toll three times higher than the Luftwaffe managed during the Blitz. Huge economic and social dislocation. The avoidable deprivation of our freedoms for well over a year because of the failure to get a public health crisis under control. And, of course, other countries have managed to enjoy those freedoms uh, because they managed to suppress the public health crisis and suffered far less economic consequences as well, because running throughout the entire response was the false dichotomy that we should not take the drastic action needed to suppress the public health crisis because of the damage that it would inflict on our economy. Now, that, of course, was a false dichotomy, as we've seen, because the failure, the, the threat, the biggest threat, not just to human life, but to the economy, isn't the measures needed to be taken against the virus, it's the virus itself. And countries which took firm and decisive action to suppress the virus, their economies did not suffer the grave consequences that ours have. Now, revolutions have started over less than this. Mass death, economic catastrophe, the mass deprivation of people's freedoms for unavoidably, uh, for avoidably long periods of time. And yet, as things stand, the Conservatives are set away to get away with the biggest scandal since appeasement because of a media and the main opposition party have let them get away. And I don't apologise for using the term social murder, a term which was popularised by Friedrich Engels in the 19th century. That's what we're talking about on the show today. Just before I bring in uh, our two guests, and I should just explain, we've got uh, later on Susan Mickey, who's on Sage. She's going to talk through her reaction uh, as one of our, our leading experts in the country to Dominic Cummings' uh, confession slash testimony, plus the current situation, because uh, cases and hospitalizations are rising. Is the same disastrous mistakes going to be made all over again? I certainly want to know the answers to that, and uh, she will be absolutely brilliant, as she always is. Um, and will shortly be blamed uh, shortly be joined by uh, my brilliant friend James Butler a brilliant writer to talk through uh, Dominic Cummings confession right i'm now going to bring in that's enough of me the brilliant writer as i said James Butler from uh, Navarra the brilliant Navarra uh, he's uh, i would say one of the best writers that the british left has 
So, oh, also, by the way, it's his birth. <laughs> happy, it's not his birthday today, though. We will be no. going to a park later on to celebrate his birthday, which I'm looking forward to <laughs> after this uh, interrogation. Uh, so, happy birthday, James, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Do Google James Butler LRB because you'll read his uh, fantastic <laughs> essays. Um, London Review Books does some of the best writing on politics in the country, and James is an example of that. James, can we start with, what do you think? I mean, did we learn anything particularly new? How much of this do you think was in the public domain as just kind of eye-catching because Dominic Cummings has a flair for the theatric and also, you know, he's placed it in a Tory psychodrama tried <laughs> by shooting against Matt Hancock, that kind of thing. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's in a, in a sense, it's a huge problem, right, the way that this stuff gets reported on because if we're confining it just to a question of kind of power politics within the Conservative Party, it's a really kind of great story. It's an incredibly dramatic story. It's a really powerful story to cover. Um, there's lots of intrigue. There's lots of kind of Kremlinology to do um, about which part of the Tory party is fighting another part and who Cummings is really out to get. Um, I think it's a more important story than that, actually. I think the stuff that, that Cummings was saying as uh, in his testimony here was... You know, as you suggested in your introduction, I mean, it, it is much more significant than a matter of power politics within the Conservative Party. Um, so in terms of new things, we actually didn't learn that much that was new. Um, you know, it struck me that what Cummings was doing was using the kind of parliamentary privilege which is involved in testimony to a committee like this to get out into the public domain stuff that had kind of been lurking around already. So... Uh, beyond the kind of really, you know, dramatic stuff, and you had a couple of clips there, and you know, I, I think anyone who sat through it will have, will have seen how, how you know, as you say, Cummings has a flair for the dramatic, and he is unlike most conservatives when they're giving testimony, in that he is he has no loyalty to the party. The party can't really give him very many things that he wants, um, so he felt very very free. Uh, to say the kind of things in public that most people as part of political parties just instinctively don't do. So uh, nonetheless, there was not a kind of smoking gun, but there was stuff in there that was really important. So so for me, the stuff that, that comes out when you get under the drama uh, is, is first, you know, so the stuff that he's laying out, uh, uh, you know, Johnson's comment about letting the bodies pile high. Now, this is a comment that Johnson denied in uh, in the chamber uh, this sets him up for a kind of slightly awkward moment because at some point that's going to you know i, I am sure uh, when the opposition finds its spine uh, that they might press him on that so he's he's in an awkward position here so he has officially denied it which means he's in a position where he'll now be pressed given that cummings has given this testimony uh, about misleading uh, uh, parliament a smart opposition would put together uh, that comment and various others of, uh, of Johnson's denials um, about what happened and when. Uh, there are other, there's other stuff though in, in, in the testimony that I think is extraordinary. So, uh, you know, Johnson, you know, we kind of know this stuff already, but, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that he's so utterly media driven, that he is so utterly uh, obsessed with how he's represented um, in public, uh, you know, that was an important thread of everything. Uh, uh, that Cummings was saying. And then the accusations about Carrie Simmons using her influence uh, to secure jobs for her friends. Now, that's quite dodgy territory uh, for her. 
but absolutely the, the biggest part of the testimony was uh, the sheer vitriol leveled at man, Matt Hancock. And I'm laughing because it's sort of extraordinary for someone who has been involved in politics at the highest level like this um, to, to be so absolutely brutal uh, and ruthless in public. Um, so, so Cummings is, uh, and really it is the sort of the, 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 the most important part of his testimony in some ways, is this idea that, that, that Hancock just lied um, lied about uh, uh, you know the testing competence. So uh, the the, the coming testimony is that uh, Hancock had assured uh, various people in Whitehall and in Number Ten that uh, testing was being carried out on patients who were being discharged into nursing homes. Uh, and Cummings's claim is that that was you know, that Hancock actively deceived um, those in Whitehall um, and sort of continued to do so publicly. Now, again, we do know, and I think anyone who works in the sector knows, uh, and, and anyone who has had uh, uh, relatives in care homes over the last year, year and a bit, um, knows very, very well that this testing wasn't carried out and people were discharged um, while positive with COVID-19 into these places and it spread like wildfire. That's that's what Cummings said. But again, it, it's about putting these facts front and centre. And in a sense, Cummings is doing the job of the media for them. Um, this stuff should be on the front pages of newspapers and should have been on the front pages of newspapers continually over the course of the past year and a half. Um, you know, as you say, uh, as you said uh, uh, in your introduction there, you know, uh, often with this stuff, I think of the, the old line from Cicero, that the health of the people is the highest law. Right? This is the first priority of government. Uh, and 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 it, and it is, and it should be shocking. It should be shocking that it's not just incompetence. It's not just incompetence. It is, it, you know, it is active deception. It is, it is a, a total disregard um, for the health of the people. So, so in that sense, no, nothing new. But bringing these facts front and centre um, again, hugely, hugely important. I mean, that point you make there about incompetence. How much do you think the calamitous British response to COVID-19 was about incompetence. So how much do you think it was, what has to be said, was an entirely misguided um, attempt to prioritise economic interests over human life? Because obviously, as we, I say now, no, we knew this earlier, obviously, people did make this point repeatedly. And it wasn't learned over and over again, because lockdown was delayed not once not twice but three times um that if you don't get on top of a public health crisis the economic consequences are going to be graver but what do you i mean what do you think if you're going to identify i suppose the main driving forces behind the catastrophic response where where do you fall on that so i think this is a really interesting question and it's a sort of hard one to answer because in a sense the testimony that cummings is giving actually probably could be given by anyone who's worked at the top of government, right? Um, it, it's not a surprise, and it, I think it's something that, that people who come into government for the first time, say, who, who are kind of working as officials, have a really disconcerting moment, are really shocked by that there is very often chaos at the top. It's, it's, it's not a new thing. Um, here, however, I think you're quite right to identify um, th that it's not, you know... It, so lots of the conversation about this stuff is centered around whether uh, the, the British public, uh, what the British public expect their government to do in a situation like this. And 
you know, in a sense, the first, you know, the, the first period, and, and, and this is, you know, the thing that I thought was astonishing about Cummings' testimony in one sense, is that he concentrated very, very strongly on that first period. Now, listen, like, there's been a lot of kind of incorrect, uh, you know, you know, retrospective rejigging of history here. Um, you know, by the time the first lockdown came in, we all knew it was necessary. We all knew they were delaying. We all knew... Um, that this needed to happen. Uh, and there was something astonishing early on about this sort of bizarre British exceptionalism at the top of government, just thinking, oh, well, we won't bother to learn from all the other countries who are dealing with this, and particularly uh, in, South, in Southeast Asia. Um, it, it, it is astonishing in some ways uh, that, 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 that they simply you know, refuse to learn. And that to me is compounding. So, so the problem here is that, so one, yes, there's always chaos at the top of government. There's always like bizarre power politics going on. And there's always uh, uh, much less organization than one would hope. Um, and I think this is a, an important political fact to bear in mind. However, the thing that is, to my mind, criminal is that they refuse to learn the lessons. They refuse to learn the lessons. And this is something where Cummings' testimony actually falls down. So, you know, Cummings thinks that the mistakes made were a function of, they arose from the personality traits of the people involved. Now, it, you and I, and I think most people on the left, tend to be inclined to think about things in structural ways. Um, I actually think personality matters. It matters that Boris Johnson uh, you know, it, it wants to be liked. It matters uh, uh, that, that he has, uh, you know, he's entitled and lazy and doesn't do the work. It matters. This stuff like personality matters. However, it is to me absolutely astonishing that Dominic Cummings could sit there uh, and not make the connection, not realise that, that, that it, as you said again in your introduction, it wasn't once, it wasn't twice, it was three times that they prevaricated and temporised and just really, really, really were hostile to the idea of you know, anything to interrupt that would interrupt kind of economic flows. Now, listen, you know, we, we would both say, I think, that it's important it really matters, um, you know, that, that that we don't crash the economy um, three times over. But but precisely because we fail to deal with it time after time after time, we have this kind of push pull in out, and you know, and so the damage is is much much harder. Uh, you know, lots of these people at the top of government really 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 uh, make these decisions largely based on the interests of business. I mean, it's just what the Conservative Party is for. It's what it does. They are very, very hostile to anything that would get in the way um, of, of kind of the circulation uh, uh, of capital. Uh, and, and in a sense, you know, you can understand that. Um, but it's so, so dangerous, in, you know. And as you say, it's, it, it's such a false dichotomy. And it's really clear that it, it ran throughout government, that, 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 that this false dichotomy has been there since the beginning. So, yeah. Johnson's instincts always to preserve the economy at all costs. As you say, it's a bad calculation. Uh, uh, I, but this was the error. And the thing is, is like, you know, I, the error was bad. It was a mistake to make that decision uh, in the way that they made that decision in the first place. It is far, far worse to fail to learn from it, to fail to change what you need to do. And, you know, again, this is something where Cummings' testimony fell down because 
he's so concentrated on character that he, you know, there was a series of questions from uh, from a Tory MP on on the committee, uh, actually very interesting questions about the institutional consequences, what he would have changed institutionally, what you know, what should what should be done. You know, the committee is formally a lessons learned committee. Um, uh, Cummings can't think about institutions in that sense. He's very, very, very concentrated on people, um, so it's extremely frustrating in that sense. The testimony. And not to fall into that trap of concentrating on people, but it was notable that he, as we say, went for Hancock in a in a big, 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 big way. And that's, you know, this is I'm not suddenly gonna appoint myself the Matt Hancock fan club chair, because he's obviously a disgrace. <laughs> and what he did with care homes, as I said, one in fourteen care home patients died of COVID nineteen in the first three months of the pandemic. But the fact he defended Rishi Sunak. Um, over and mm. over again, which really, I think, undermined it was the main, you know, not just, you know, anyone who studied history knows that the uh, the genre of memoir is always full of self-justification, which you, you always have to take into account. But the fact Rishi Sunak, who played an absolute pivotal role in delaying lockdown too, he brought in anti-lockdown uh, uh, skeptics who've been completely and utterly discredited at every single turn of this pandemic over and over again. And yet they still maintain their positions of influence. They're still interviewed on national television and radio, apparently. What do you think about that? You know, the role of Rishi Sunak. And it's not just eat out yeah. to help out everyone focusing yeah. on them. I mean, that is linked to one in six COVID clusters over last summer. But to be fair, COVID-19 was at a low ebb during the summer. That's still a problem, though. Nonetheless, you know, it's, it's the delaying lockdown in lockdown two, despite having no excuse at that point. What do you think, Rishi Sunak? Yeah, I mean, as, as you say, like the 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 kind of ongoing defence of Sunak there um, is sort of astonishing, and it does undermine his testimony in a sense. Um, look, it's very clear to me that that Hancock has genuinely angered Cummings, and that ha and that Cummings genuinely feels that that he is an incompetent and that he's not up to the job, and that also, I mean, it's it's you know the the vitriol with which he, which he went for the, for him that's genuine. Um, on the other hand, as you say, <laughs> the Sunak stuff is sort of astonishing. Uh, you know, this is you know one of the massive lockdown skeptics in government, and you know, as you say, it's not just actually eat out to help out. Um, it's much more to do with the hostility to, for instance, raising statutory sick pay, whether temporarily or uh, or permanently. Um, SSP in, in Britain is extraordinarily low. In, you know, in Western European terms, it's it's actually quite astonishing. Um, so therefore, you go to the you, you know the, you go to the question and you think, okay, so so why is he exculpating Sunak, and why doesn't Michael Gove feature? I mean, these are the two features of, of Cummings' testimony that that are uh, provocative. You know, Gove is absolutely absent. I mean, you know, the man is a, a prominent government minister. He's he was very powerful. He was one of the four making decisions while Johnson uh, uh, was hospitalised with with COVID, um, and yet he features almost not at all in Cummings's testimony. I mean, and and that you know should leave you thinking. Obviously, Cummings used to work um, with Gove uh, in the Department for Education. You know, so the question of personal loyalty there, the question of whether he thinks that you know, in terms of any influence he might have in future, uh, uh, whether he wants to keep on reasonably good terms with those people. And then, you know, so this does return you to the question of power politics in the Conservative Party. And you think, OK, so, uh, you know, there's always been a degree of scepticism and hostility to 
uh, at Johnson Ministry in the Conservative Party. It's not that you know, they're not willing to exploit it. It's that they think correctly he's basically not up to the job. Um, and maybe it was necessary for them to win power this time around. But uh, but they will be thinking probably yeah, probably in the medium term um, that, that maybe they don't want to stick with him uh, for so long. But yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, again, it's very hard here to extricate the question of just personal competence from, you know, you know almost kind of malicious or negligent decision making. Um, and again, the stuff I come back to time after time, it's just that the, the, the errors were repeated. Yeah. And and that's the thing that, that I left that testimony with, thinking, actually, it is astonishing that these errors were repeated. But, you know, why be surprised? There's no accountability for them at all. So, of course, they were repeated. On that point about accountability, I mean, COVID-19 is a story of many, many things. But one is it exposes uh, British democracy. Uh, we have a heavily caveated democracy, but uh, let's take the role of the media. Now, as Johnson, as we know, prior he was calling COVID the new swine flu and the second most uh, senior official in the country was saying that this country is absolutely F-U-C-K-E-D. Lord Cunnersburg, the BBC political editor, took to Twitter to share a video produced by an obscure podiatrist named Footman447. I presume she got WhatsApp this because even now he's only got like 2,000 subscribers. He doesn't even have like an an image on his... But anyway, he got in touch with me privately. I'm not... I probably... I won't divulge what he said. But anyway, he explained the logic for herd immunity using buckets of water. Um, and in it said, that you know, part of the... He just said flippantly, well, the British public obviously are never going to accept lockdown for prolonged periods. On social media, Labour's demands that the government publish its scientific advice were ridiculed, of course, quite infamously by one commentator as hipster analysis. Uh, critics were denounced for politicising COVID. I think both of us were criticised at the time for politicising COVID. Uh, me by people like Dan Hodges. Firmly and calmly gush one Telegraph editor who's now become a government speechwriter. That's the revolving door, British media and government. The UK is leading Europe in the fight against coronavirus. That was about um, a week and a half before lockdown. It, 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 the Financial Times, which to be fair, has lots of sober analysis. Um because finance capital, does, you know, doesn't doesn't necessarily like spin. This was Boris Johnson's Churchill moment, they said. But, you know, if you take, it's really interesting reading the New York Times 19 days before lockdown, because the New York Times wrote a piece about Britain's looming calamity uh, that was lacking in most of the domestic press. You know, this is an American correspondent who comes here and watches a country merrily skipping towards the cliff edge, uh, noting a lack of ventilators, already overflowing intensive care beds, health workers buying their own PPE, drained NHS. That wasn't the focus of British coverage. The New York Times uh, correspondent in London was obviously just looking around and what, whilst the domestic mm. press was going on about, you know, about leading the... So what do you think in terms of the British media and the role of the British media, with very honourable exceptions, by the way, and actually one example of the Sunday Times insight team who did superb investigative journalism, I've interviewed them, uh, superb, and they've exposed a lot of what we know. In fact, the reason we know already what Cummings said is because they actually revealed it first. So it's really important I say that because some journalists have done very, very good work. But what do you think generally the role of the media in all this? I mean, you know, look, I, it's very, you know, I, I think the British press is shameful. <laughs> you know, it's really, really hard to, to, you know, as you say, it's a mixed bag. 
there are some people doing extraordinary work out there. But the system we have for reporting on government in this country is shameful. Um, you know, I, I can, you and I could go on for a long time about the lobby system. We could go on for a long time about the, the closeness it breeds between correspondents and those in government. Um, it, it, the, these commentators to, to whom you refer, um, who, who went on about hipster analysis, you would imagine that a period of silence might occur to them now. Some sort of shame might occur to them now. Of course, it's the British press, so it doesn't. Um, there was something kind of dazzling about the, the Twitter thread, which Dominic Cummings previewed his appearance, which is sort of internal. Um, and, and a lot of response was, uh, was, was <laughs> it's kind of astonishing. Oh, oh, it turns out herd immunity was gone. Well, we knew this. And as you say, it was, you know, the Sunday Times uh, uh, did really great work on this stuff. Um, <laughs> there's a very carefully cultivated form of amnesia that occupies particularly lobby journalists and particularly uh, uh, political correspondents, and, and especially the BBC's uh, political correspondents. Um, and it's a kind of court journalism, you know, the, the, the response to, to those in power is just to go, oh, okay, right, uh, yes, no, I'll take that. And look, in times of national emergency, it's a very difficult role in some ways, but, but this is exactly where we need the kind of scrutiny and the kind of, frankly, kind of sceptical approach to what they're being told by these people. Look, the other thing that really frustrates me at the moment is the response to Cummings' testimony has been, ah, oh, well, you know, it's not salient, it's not going to cut through. Um, yeah, and this is, I, I don't understand why people who say this are journalists. You think your work has no effect at all on, on, on what people think? Then why are you writing? Why are you working? Why are you working in this field? If you don't think that your journalism can change what the British public think and what the British public know and what the British public demand from their government, then why are you in the job in the first place? It's unbelievably frustrating. They, you know, they treat this event as if it was something that happened out there that they have no influence over the reception of and the understanding of. That's their job. That's our job. Our job is to make sure that people know and understand how poorly they've been served by their government, and they're just not doing it. And it drives me up the wall. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Speaking of things which make me angry, I get angry about, just as angry as you did just there about the role of the media, the official opposition, the Labour Party, led by Sir Keir Starmer. Now, 
I just want to go back. I just realized I, mean, I forgot this detail, by the way. I'm just going to flash up a little reminder because in the beginning of the crisis, I completely forgot about this. The main line of attack that Keir Starmer came up with after the first lockdown was imposed was demanding a roadmap to end lockdown, which actually, if you think about it, is quite extraordinary because it meant that the line of attack wasn't about the fact that the government failed to lock down quick enough. It, it just was Labour trying to say we need to get out of this lockdown as soon as possible. Now, I think one of the things I'd say about what Labour's strategy, because it's led by people who um, are hubristic, um, they're, um, you know, turns out binge-watching the West Wing isn't doesn't necessarily grant you huge political skills. They are very inexperienced, most of them. Uh, they felt that they would just march in and be the grown-ups in the room, and their predecessors were so self-evidently shambolic that they'd know how politics works and it would all fall into place. But one of the things they do is they focus, because they don't have a coherent vision, and Keir Starmer doesn't have any coherent vision or anything of, uh, or any sense whatsoever of what he wants to, to do with political power. No Labour leadership, in my view, in the history of the Labour Party has been so bereft of, of vision as, as, as this one, whether you like the vision or not in, in terms of predecessors. But what they do with their focus groups is they focus particularly on people who voted Conservative in 2019. And what these focus groups, the most, it's almost like a cliche you'll get often from voters, which don't play politics. If you get, if you say in a question time audience, don't play politics with X, Y, or Z, you'll get, you'll get applauded. Now, I bet you, and I didn't sit on these focus groups, but I would just presume during the financial crash, the Conservatives would have got they would have listened to these focus groups and they would have said, don't play politics. It's a crisis. It's a terrible crisis. But what the Tories did instead is, is they repeated verbatim. They went, uh, so they repeated ad infinitum. They said, you know, uh, Labour overspent. They spent too much money. They didn't fix the roof while the sun was shining. We're going to clear up Labour's mess. And lo and behold, six months later or so, the focus groups were all repeating back the Tory lines. And for years, until our ears were bleeding, you knock on doors and just hear Tory attack lines being fed back to you. That was actually a myth. You know, the Tories are back to Labour spending pound for pound before the crash. This time round, as the most, literally the number two guy in government, Dominic Cummings, has made clear, tens of thousands of people were sent avoidably to the death by a government, as he said, who did not, should not have been in power. They, they were, they, including himself, he said they were incapable of running the country. And yet you've had an opposition which just basically backed them over and over again, uh, boasted of that they weren't going to, you know, be too critical of the government. In January, when the lockdown was going to happen, they were going on about how we can't shut down the schools, we can't shut down the schools. Uh, and then obviously you had to back the government when they learned the government were going to shut down the schools. And I think they only did this because the unions were demanding it and they didn't want to look like they were in the pockets of the unions. I mean, imbeciles, absolute stupid imbeciles. And I am angry about this because they've let the government get away with it. Sorry, I am ranting. No, but, as you should be. But tell me, look, I want to hear your thoughts on this because, you know, what what on earth do you think Labour were thinking all the way through? And do you think it's just ended in a situation now where, because I think the Captain Hindsight attack line, I think it's got, I think they've got a point. I think it's got, yeah, I think, I mean, it, I think it's, it, it's, it, it's in, I mean, so it's what do you extremely think effective. It's extremely go, go. effective. It's an extremely effective attack line um, precisely because Labour, look, you know, you and I both know that the probably leader of the opposition is probably the hardest job in British politics. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. Uh, your, your room for manoeuvre is very, very limited. Um, the impact you can have is very limited. Nonetheless, uh, you know, he's really making a hash of it. And it, it, obviously they went into this process thinking, OK, uh, uh, 
the Labour Party has a reputation for um, politicising everything. In the last few years, we've politicised everything. This is a national emergency and we must be seen to be responsible. We must be seen um, to, to, to be serious. And, and the issue here is that, you know, it's like it's like after the first Labour government, when when uh, when the Conservatives then went off the gold standard and uh, and the response was, oh, I didn't know you could do that. The, the Conservatives are very good at politics. They understand that you make, you know, you make political capital out of everything. And it's important. It, it's necessary to have that kind of division um, uh, in public. Look, so the problem for the Labour Party is, is, is enormous, actually. Um, as you say, they're bereft of vision, but actually they have now painted themselves into a corner because they have spent the whole period going, oh, well, uh, we agree with the government. Um, so anything they now say, it's like, well, you were on side. You voted for it. You didn't raise any questions. Um, and it's worked. They compound it by, as you, you know, I mean, the, you know, it's an issue in one sense that they stand for nothing. Uh, and it has been astonishing over the last couple of weeks, every time, um, uh, a shadow cabinet minister is is on TV. It, it's now become almost a joke that they're asked, "Oh, well, what does the Labour Party stand for?" And it's either, oh, "Well, that's confidential. We're not going to tell you," um, or, 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 "Oh, we stand for something utterly vapid uh, uh, and incoherent." Uh, it, it, it is worse in a sense. And look, Keir Starmer has this habit, and it was noticeable when he was uh, shadow Brexit secretary. Uh, he has this habit of of making things into, you know, making political questions into demands of process, right? And this is actually Labour's demand in response to these revelations is public inquiry must be brought forward. Are you joking? I mean, this is, you know, where is the opposition? I mean, this is astonishing. This is absolutely astonishing. You know, it, it, is, it, is, it is a typical thing, uh, you know, a typical habit of Keir Starmer's to translate political questions into questions of process. And he doesn't understand, doesn't understand that, that in a moment like this, you, you need to capitalise on, on, on these issues. And it's not about self-interest. It's not about, you know, it, it being good for the Labour Party. It, it, it's, it's, it's about the country. The country needs an opposition. It needs, uh, uh, you, know, it, you know, it needs the leader of the Labour Party, the leader of the opposition, to stand up and say, this is where the government has gone wrong continually. It is, we've had this absolutely damning testimony. Here are our demands. Here are our demands about, uh, 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 you know, about benefits, about sick pay, about uh, uh, the capacity to, to actually take seriously the nation's health. And therefore, you know, we want people to be able to isolate. We need to pay them correctly. All of these stuff. There are actual concrete demands he could make. What demand does he make? Bring forward the public inquiry. My God, how embarrassing. Brilliant stuff, James. We're really honoured to have you. Um, and I'll leave you now to go and prepare for your birthday. And I will be joining Thank you, you uh, later. But that was absolutely, <laughs> absolutely phenomenal stuff. I mean, really, really, really appreciate it. Do, as I've said, follow... James on social media on Piers Penniless um, and look up his work, particularly LRB, where he writes um, some of the best political writings that you'll find. Thank you, James. I'll see you in a bit. See you later. See you later. Uh, I'm now really honoured to bring in uh, Professor Susan Mickey, who is on SAGE and, of course, one of our leading experts. We've had her on before, so we're very honoured to have her back. Hey, Susan, how you doing? Hiya. Nice to be back again. I know. Big, big honour. Lovely to see you. Um, so to begin, 
I'm interested in, I mean, I don't know how you keep your composure because you're one of the experts who all the way through have been vindicated at every single stage of this crisis. You've said over and over again what needed to happen and often people like yourself have been ignored. Um, and then you watch Dominic Cummings well over a year after this terrible crisis and nightmare which has enveloped this country um, began. Uh, just confess to everything. I mean, you know, confess, if you like. What's your response, I suppose, as from a scientific point of view, as someone, along with your colleagues, who, as I've said, have been vindicated over and over again, hearing that confession from what was, after all, the second most powerful point of view? Good question. Um, just to say I'm speaking in my personal capacity. Oh, sorry, but, yes. Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I... Yeah, I'm part of the behavioural science um, group within SAGE. I'm also a member of Independent SAGE. And both of these incredibly impressive groups have been putting out scientific advice for you know, over a year now. And much of it hasn't been implemented. Some of it really very important advice that really could change the <clears throat> course of the, the pandemic. And obviously, we thought over those all those months you know why not well um you never get any feedback um so you never know uh, whether it's that they haven't received the advice they don't agree with the advice they don't know how to implement it they try implementing it and, and it fails you just don't know and i think it's a big gap i think in the future there should be people who are specifically looking at that whole translational implementation pathway from the scientific advice to policy and practice but listening to Cummings, and I only listened to about an hour and a half of the uh, seven hours, um, what did strike me was that I became, I mean, obviously it's one person's perspective, but it, a lot of it kind of corroborated other things. And it made me wonder if part of the reason why some of that advice hasn't been followed is just that it's not, it's not discussed, it's not considered um, the you know governmental organisation that's required to um, put the advice that is accepted into practice just isn't there. And I, I, I mean, along with lots of other people, I found I found it quite horrifying what was being said. I think it's a real shame, and I think actually it's more than a shame that um, we're having to listen to an inquiry of one person, you know, there should be an inquiry now about what's gone wrong so we can learn now because we're far from out of this. And it's not good enough to say, well, you know, we'll have an inquiry next spring. Anybody who's been involved in inquiry knows you have to set up a chair, you have to get a committee, you have to get terms of reference, you have to organise the whole procedure. That takes about a year to do. I've had no word at all that any of that's being thought about or planned at all so I think why he got a lot of traction was that the public the press everyone is bereft of any source of information about why things have gone so badly wrong which they have right from the get-go and as your last speaker said no real signs of lessons being learned as we go along before we come on to that in terms of the current situation. Uh, I'm interested in this question of behavioral science. Um, I alluded to this, uh, well, I mentioned this video, which was notoriously posted by the BBC political editor, 
before lockdown happened, basically a podiatrist rationalizing the government's response using buckets of water. I mean, what, I don't even know what to say. It went viral partly because she tweeted it out, got 3 million views. Um, anyway, uh, and one of the things he said was, well, obviously the British public will never tolerate lockdown being imposed for a prolonged period of time. And actually, as we know, all the way through the crisis is actually the public have been far more hardline you know, well, well, they've been far more hardline than the government because the government have been so obviously disastrously rubbish over and over again. But I mean, over and over again, they've always backed punitive measures and actually they've thought they were too late. They thought they're not strong enough. The polling now shows that most people don't support, for example, the reopening taking place next June or more than not. Um, so how much does behavioural science, do behavioural scientists have a case to answer that they said to government the British public are not going to tolerate being locked down for a long period of time. And therefore you can only do it when it's absolutely necessary for short durations. Um, do you remember the mantra? Uh, we follow the science. Yeah. It went over and over and over again. We're following the science. Um, interestingly, it's not heard anymore, but when we heard that, when I say me and scientific colleagues immediately began um, thinking, why is this being said so often? I've worked with policymakers in government for many decades now. I never expect policymakers and politicians to follow the science. I hope they'll be informed by the science, that they'll take it seriously, they'll try and understand it, and they'll integrate it in a sensible way with other types of information they need to take into account to take what are policy and political decisions. But that mantra, follow the science, um, rang alarm bells. Why did they ring alarm bells? Um, because I thought, hang on, are we being set up to be blamed here if things go wrong? Well, we were just following the science. And then suddenly this um, idea of behavioral fatigue came along. And uh, um, Chris Whitty, um, the chief, science, chief medical officer, uh, talked about it. Other people talked about it. Suddenly it was a thing um, that, as you said, oh, people will suffer from behavioral fatigue and therefore you know, we can't lock down too early because then we'll have to unlock down because they won't wear it. This is showing um, no knowledge of how people react to crises and big health threats. When people do rally around, people do adhere to what's being asked of them and people do make incredible sacrifices in very challenging situations. Um, but suddenly, um, these wicked behavioural scientists were meant to have said this. Now, Behavioural fatigue is not a scientific term. You will not find it in any theories of behaviour. There's no measures of it. There's no evidence about it. And um, the committee, the Behavioural Science Committee, that's called SPY-B, um, never discussed it. None of our reports mention it. It never came from us. And um, in fact, myself and um, a couple of colleagues wrote an article in the British Medical Journal um, last year um, saying exactly this. Um, and there was a petition last March, I think it was, anyway, last spring, from about 600 behavioural scientists uh, saying, you know, where is the evidence for this? And don't use this in terms of informing policy until you show us your evidence. Obviously, we, we never heard it. So it's a really dangerous um, situation when politicians are blaming scientists for things especially when they're blaming um, them without any basis. 
And then we heard it from um, Dominic Cummings again last week, who actually called behavioural scientists charlatans. Well, I'm sorry if he knows some behavioural scientists that are charlatans, but certainly those on uh, Independent Sage, those on the um, behavioural science part of Sage, are incredibly talented, um, large numbers of incredibly talented uh, people who really understand um, the evidence and take it very seriously. Um, so I have to say that I think it's an example of, um, you know, playing po or politicians playing politics with science. And I think it is um, irresponsible. It's socially irresponsible because what it does is undermine trust in science at a time when we absolutely need um, science and, and evidence of what works um, to help get us out of this pandemic. Before I ask you about the current situation, John McKenzie is in Hong Kong and he asked why warnings from here in Asia were ignored. Really good point. And uh, many people have asked that and there's been all sorts of answered, answers to it. Um, is it you know, British exceptionalism, um, arrogance, ignorance, blind optimism amongst the government? I don't know. But what I would say is it's a, a really serious mistake. Um, you know, the World Health Organization has been calling from things right from the beginning, like setting up a really good test, trace and isolate system. You look at other countries around the world and see what they've done well. Um, and the measures that they've done well should be adopted, but they haven't been. And you look at those people around the world who've done things like good border controls, like good test, trace and isolate, like um, regular, honest, open communication between government and, and people. And they're the countries that have done best in um, saving lives and minimizing the effect of the pandemic, both on health, well-being, livelihoods, also on the economy. So it's it's really, um, I mean, it's really poor at the beginning. But what's also really bad is that the lessons just don't seem to be being learned. You know, look at what we've seen in India. Look at what happened in terms of travel from India and other countries. Look at what we've now got at the moment with the B16172 variant uh, that was first identified in India. You know, mistakes are just being made time and time again. And as your last speaker said, I think that's what's really unforgivable. Fair enough. But it's not fair enough. But, you know, people do get things wrong. Governments do get things wrong um, on occasion. The important thing is you analyse why you got it wrong and you learn from that and don't keep repeating mistakes. But sadly, we're just, you know, in Groundhog Day. Well, on that, so I'm looking now at the government's dashboard, uh, coronavirus dashboard, um, and it says people tested positive has gone up by 23.3% over the last seven days. So that's 21,500 people. Uh, deaths, and I should say deaths have been, thankfully, a, a, a very low level. Obviously, every death is a, is a terrible tragedy for everyone involved. But we were obviously seeing at one point around, you know, up to 2,000 people died a day. Um, and uh, But they've gone up by 44%. But that as it's from a low level. So that's going up by 18 to 59. But as we, as people will know by now, deaths are very much a lagging indicator. So people obviously who die of COVID-19 now were infected potentially some weeks ago. Uh, you know, it's been 
you know, we, we know with the variant which which was first identified in India that entered Britain on the 1st of April, um, but it took 22 days for India to be placed on the red list. And that's because Boris Johnson prioritised a trade deal with India. So again, the recurring story, misguidedly prioritising economic interests over public health and human life. Um, so I suppose what I'm asking you is, I mean, now we know that variant is now, the government have announced it's dominant in Britain. And that is, if you think about how horrifying that is, given it, it only entered the country, or we know it entered the country, or they knew at the beginning of last month, and now it's dominant in the country. How bad is this season, as I suppose I'm asking? Because a lot of people go, well, look, a lot of people now have had their first dose. In fact, if I look at the uh, vaccination statistics, nearly three quarters of the adult population, myself including, Moderna, uh, have had their first dose, and 47.3% have had their second dose. And we know with the second dose, nearly half the adult population, but that is overwhelmingly older people and people with underlying health conditions. So a lot of people might look at those statistics and go, well, obviously it's worrying cases are going up, but actually won't that the virus crash against this wall of vaccinated human bodies? And will hospitalizations and deaths really rise that much? Because a lot of the people who are going to be infected are going to be younger. And I know long COVID, I know lots of people with long COVID, so I'm not belittling that. And we don't want younger people to get long COVID, so let's not belittle it. But I suppose that's my, my question is, how serious is this? Do you think the great unlocking Independence Day or whatever, should that not go ahead? Um, or, I mean, where do you stand on all this, basically? Yeah. Um, well, as you say, it's a mixed picture, but we haven't got a wall of vaccination. You know, the, the majority of adults don't yet have two doses. No children have, um, have been vaccinated. And we know that the, um, this new variant has been rising quickest in those um, up to children up to 19 years old. Um, so we're in a really precarious situation because we also know there's vaccine escape from this new variant. People who've had one dose are only 33% protected from the new variant. Um, so we're in a, a race, basically, between getting what really need about 90% population-wide immunity, and that's of everybody, um, in order for, for the virus to be defeated. Um, so there's a race of that, on the other hand, um, of the um, variant running away with us again. And the worrying thing um, is, is actually, yes, we're still at very low levels, but that's not what you have to keep an eye on. If you're just looking at the current situation and always responding to the current situation, which unfortunately has been too much of the practice um, over this last year, um, you've lost it. You have to be anticipating what's going to happen. And how do you anticipate it? You look and see what's happened at the part from the past. You listen to the statistical modelers, the scientists, and you look at what's happened in, in the rest of the world. So let's look at at what's happened in our past. Um, the, the, um, you know, the, the lockdown, the running away before Christmas, that was the B117 identified in Kent. Exactly the same thing as what the situation we're now in. Low levels, but it was beginning to rise steeply in some areas, and then suddenly it begins rising exponentially. And um, it, by that time, it's really difficult to control other than a lockdown. So that's that's what's happened in the past. And there's a lot of similarities, even though, you, as you say, um, 
40 something percent of the population have, have had two doses of the vaccine. The um, second issue is um, looking and see what the scientists say. Well, the SAGE reports that have been coming out have basically been saying that this is of real concern and that there's a, a real uh, likelihood of uh, this escalating again unless measures are taken. And you look at what's happening in the rest of the country and you know what's been happening in India, incredibly serious. And so the issue is really going to come down to how much more transmissible this is than our previous variant B117. We know it's more transmissible. And what the modelers are saying, if it's 30% more transmissible, we could be able to contain it with the current situation we're in. Um, but certainly not if we begin unlocking anything else, lifting any other restrictions. Um, if it's 50% more transmissible, we're in a real, really difficult situation. So we won't actually know for another week or so what, what the reality is. But what I can say is we're on a knife edge. It could go either way. And so everything should be being done right now uh, to minimise the chance of this rising exponentially and potentially <laughs> another more restrictions. We don't want Nobody wants another lockdown. Hence, it's as wise to be cautious now. But that's not just all of us in terms of our behaviours and doing things like socialise outdoors. If you do meet people from other households indoors, keep your doors and windows open. Um, wear masks if you're indoors on, on tubes and buses, etc. I've seen people just not wearing them anymore. All of that we should be doing. But the government has to be doing its bit. And not only are they not doing the things that we've been asking them to do month after month after month, but they've, for example, um, suggested that now school children don't need to wear masks anymore when there was no problem of that happening. In fact, um, school students were really good at, at, in general, at wearing them and there was no big problem. Um, and they're still not doing what they should be doing in terms of ensuring um, COVID safe public spaces, including you know, ventilation in schools and restaurants and pubs and all the rest of it. Um, so, you know, that's quite a long answer, but I would say it's not looking good, um, but it's not certain that there will be a problem, but we just need to do everything we can at this point to minimise the chance that there might be a problem, a big problem. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad you, you mentioned the point about aeration because one of the things I'm not sorry I should clarify I'm not holding Dominic Cummings up as some sort of guru here and he's got a huge amount to answer for um but the point he made is actually one of the failings continued failings with the government messaging is prioritizing hand washing over uh, I mean people should wash their hands I should be very clear about this um and there's particularly a problem often with men just not, uh, that's what the, that's what the polling shows not washing their hands properly but but not enough focus on keep your windows open, let the air come in, all that kind of stuff. The, the final thing I wanted to put to you was, I suppose, looking at a kind of more global, uh, on a more global level. Um, I mean, you know, look, our last, the last public health crisis of this scale was, was of course, the Spanish flu. And I should say on a global level, and I, I was shocked, I have to say, when I saw this, but it does, you know... Um, Official death toll is about three and a half million. But that's not accurate, clearly, not least in countries which don't have good reporting of, of deaths. Um, so, you know, looking at figures, because I know for a long time there was a kind of, well, actually, Africa isn't being that badly hit because 
partly it's got a much younger population and less of an older population. But the statistics about Egypt, where it showed the the uh, official deaths, which was a kind of small curve, and then the excess deaths with this massive curve. Same in South Africa, uh, which I think actually has a bigger per capita excess death rate than our own, for example. And actually, the Economist estimate is that 10 million people have so far died because of COVID-19 globally since it began, which is about half the number of people who died in World War One. And obviously, we're not at the end of this. I, I mean, I suppose my question is, I mean, we look back at Spanish flu and Spanish flu had a terrible global impact, but essentially fizzled out, didn't it? I mean, it was different. It was influenza. A lot of the people who died, died of secondary bacterial infection at a time when antibiotics didn't exist. But I suppose, you know, the vaccine rollout is not, has not, is, is barely a pinprick in the global south. Yeah, yeah. countries. yeah. yeah. Where, where do you think that's going to, I mean, in terms of, I don't want to sound obviously very Anglo-centric, we've got a big vaccination program thanks to the NHS and thanks to the privilege of living, I suppose, in the imperial metropole. Um, but where is that going to leave all of us globally if, if we don't have a vaccination program that is, you know, going to deal with a virus which has killed millions of people already and will kill millions more probably? Yeah. I think that's the most important question you've asked. I mean, all the others have been important too, but that is the most important question. Um, you know, the phrase, none of us are safe until all of us are safe, is really, really important. We're a global, a global <laughs> globe. Um, but, you know, there's always going to be international travel. And what we're seeing at the moment is um, incredible inequities in terms of the vaccination. And, um, you know, the, the richer, basically the richer countries getting vaccinated um, and the poorer countries just being totally left behind. And it's not only wrong on a moral grounds to see millions of people dying unnecessarily when vaccinations could have saved them, but also it's wrong on a practical level. You know, even if people just want to look at it from a selfish point of view. Um, yes, people could get vaccinated here, but whilst there are... Um, serious levels of transmission in the world, there will be new variants, and those variants are very likely to undermine the vaccination programme. So, you know, the most selfish person here who's had their to two doses of the vaccination and think they're safe, no, they're not. They're not safe um, whilst there's high levels of this virus going around the whole world. So we need to get transmission rates down throughout the whole world. How are we going to get that? Vaccination is absolutely key to it. And it's not just a question of, well, let's you know, give some of our vaccination to some other countries. It's a question of ramping up the capacity, developing it and supporting it in all countries to produce their own vaccinations. And the most important thing, which was what was done with the HIV medications at this point, is waive the patents. It's absolutely unethical that um, the vaccinations that have been developed with public money to a large extent, public investment, are now charging money um, that are preventing countries having the recipe, if you like, to make their own uh, vaccines. So that should be done now. I think there should be a World Emergency Summit conference as urgently um, to to just work out a way of, of getting 
vaccination productivity throughout the world um, and not just, you know, in the kind of pockets that we have it in the moment at the moment. But it it's a big su subject and I can recommend um, others to come and discuss it with you in the future because, you know, as I say, I think that is the most important issue. Susan, we've been really lucky again to have had you, to have your expertise, your knowledge, your wisdom. Uh, so thank you so, so much. Please, by the way, everyone do follow Susan on on Twitter, Susan Mickey, that's Susan, M-I-C-H-I-E, um, where you'll get lots of always very knowledgeable updates about what's going on. Uh, but thank you so, I hope you can enjoy some nice warm weather. It's quite nice out you, there. So you too. You and it's been great, Owen. Thank you very much for asking me on. Always really enjoy talking to you. Always an honour. And I think soon we're going to hang out. I need to speak to, we'll work out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But we'll work out. Anyway, I'm looking forward to it. Great. All right. Lots of love, Susan. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye. Um, we're always very lucky to have such brilliant guests, such brilliant, knowledgeable, insightful guests on the show. And again, that, again, very, very educational and informative. Um, certainly answered a lot of questions I had. And I hope that was the same with all of you. I do want to end. I mean, when I talk about the role of the opposition, the Labour Party in this, and I do get this on social media going, oh, oh, you're going to blame Keir Starmer for this then, are you, Owen? Oh, letting Boris Johnson off the hook, are you? I don't really think anyone can accuse me of being soft on the Conservatives. I don't think my nickname is is uh, Owen certainly pulls his punches when it comes to the Conservatives' Jones. I mean, I've basically committed... Uh, my public career over the last 10 years, my books, my articles, my videos, social media, protests, you name it, uh, to challenging the scourge of British conservatism, which, as we've now seen, has ended in mass death. The fact is, though, that the role of the opposition in this national emergency is absolutely critical. It's critical in terms of holding the government to account. And it's also critical in providing a coherent alternative that resonates with people, which prevents people from becoming resigned. And what I think we've seen during the course of this crisis is a supine and cowardly response from a Labour leadership, which really doesn't know what they want to do with power and bet the House on competence as a dividing line believing that Sir Keir Starmer, Knight of the Realm, so obviously and self-evidently exudes an air of competence in contrast to his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn, and the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, that on those grounds, floating voters would consider the Labour Party a safer pair of hands and regard them as a superior option to a self-evidently shambolic government. And that calculation was a fatal calculation because we're very lucky to have had the, and I must emphasize, the NHS vaccine rollout in contrast to Test and Trace, which was run by private contractors, various mates of the Conservative government, cronies of the Conservative government, including scandal-ridden companies like Serco. Uh, we've seen what disaster test and trace was in the private sector. The vaccine program was a public sector program and has been a tremendous success. But the fact is, obviously, that incinerated Labour's main attack line because people didn't think the issue of incompetence resonated when it came 
to the vaccine rollout program. And Labour's left with nothing to say because they don't have a vision of what they want to do. Now, I heard Labour shadow minister saying, well, there's this bloody crisis on in there. We'd love to set out a vision, but there's a pandemic on. And I find what's so insulting about that is, I don't know if these people read books, but the, I mean, you don't even need to read a book, just have just a basic understanding of history, because Labour in World War Two could have gone, ah, oh, guys, we would absolutely love to set out a vision of what we want to do with the country, but there's this massive bleeding war going on. It is huge, and we can't set out what we want to do with the country because of it. And they didn't do that, as you probably know. What Clement Attlee's Labour Party did is go, well, actually, this national emergency underlines the need for a courageous vision. Because what it did is it, it highlighted the huge injustices that didn't just scar, but define British society. You know, when people saw uh, hungry evacuee children turning up on doorsteps, people who didn't understand the gravity of poverty in Britain saw the need for a welfare state, which obviously the Beveridge Report uh, laid out, but the British Labour post-war government created. And that new social settlement, which Labour said, when we win the war, we've got to win the peace, was the welfare state, the National Health Service, public ownership, a redistribution of wealth and power in favour of working people and their families. And that's what that's what the government did. Uh, you know, mass council housing. Uh, you know, and they didn't go, oh, we've got this deficit and debt to deal with. So I'm afraid we're going to... I mean, they went hell for leather with this huge, ambitious social reconstruction of the country on new lines, a new social settlement. And I sometimes wonder what, I mean, they're not even making a political argument, the current Labour leadership. What's their cut through political argument? It's all process, process, process at best. And, you know, Fraser Nelson, who I do not normally quote, who is the editor of The Spectator, was right. The right-wing magazine was right when he said Labour strategy is to work out where the government are heading and just get there a bit quicker. And the, 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 I'm afraid the, the, the reality of where we now are at is a lot of the country have decided that, sure, actually, the government messed this up pretty badly. I think, I think most people you ask them, I think, well, that's what the polling suggests, they'll accept that. But they'll also go, yeah, but it was a pandemic, wasn't there? Who could have expected that? It was a bad hand. It was a bad hand they were dealt. And I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. And they look at Labour and go, well, Labour wouldn't have done any better, would they? Because they, they can't look, they can't point to a clear alternative narrative that Labour set out and offered. So then they just end up resigned. And they hear Dominic Cummings and go, well, don't trust him anyway. And then just go, vaccine rollout's going well. Let bygones be bygones. And I think that's a travesty. And I think, I'm afraid, Labour are absolutely complicit in that. It's fatal for them now. Because, you know, I, you know why people... I vote for Labour because I, I'm a Labour loyalist uh, in terms of the party, I believe, is the only, under our electoral system, because of the trade union link, the only possible vehicle for social and political change. And I know other people on the left don't agree with me on that. That's my sincere point of view. I don't know why a lot of other people vote for Labour at the moment. I don't know why they would march, get out of bed and go, oh, I really want to go out and vote Labour. For what? What's the message? What's the vision? What's the reason? You know, what? You, I mean, to vote against something, fine. But that's not enough. You can't just vote against the Conservatives and a lot of people don't. And when, you know, unlike the 90s, when John Major's Tories, you know, 
was stuck to Thatcherite economics and at least Labour could say we're going to do a minimum wage, windfall tax on privatised utilities, which the Tories opposed, as well as things like gay rights and devolution. Labour did do important things in government. I think that's important to say. They did some terrible things as well, not least the invasion of Iraq and the mass murder of hundreds of thousands of Arab civilians. This Labour government, you know, under these Tories... They've ad- abandoned the old Cameron Osborne austerity and they've got a bit like Viktor Orban, the Hungarian leader, who the far right authoritarian demagogue who came to have a friendly meeting with Boris Johnson this week. They've got this combination of kind of right wing nativist populism with kind of clientelistic spending that you will spend, you know, money in certain areas where we're trying to win, kind of build our electoral coalition and then abandon the rest of the country. And that. That obviously works for people. So you can't, you know, it's not a, a, a sorry, that, that cuts through with a certain demographic. And, you know, Labour, a lot of the time, you know, they, they opposed originally increasing corporation tax when the Tories did it. A lot of them are going on about financial prudence, can't spend too much money, while the Tories are splashing money on their favoured, uh, you know, priorities. It's a travesty. We deserve a lot better than this. You know, a lot of people have died in part and obviously the government have to take the blame and responsibility for that. But I do think if the opposition had done their job, which in a democracy is to scrutinise and hold the government to account, I do think the scale of the disaster would have been smaller and I don't think people would have been as resigned as they are. And I think we should be angry about that. So when people go, oh, you're going to just go on about Keir Starmer again, are you? Well... Yeah, I was one of these people. I didn't vote for him. But when he became leader, I was like, well, you know, in good faith, he won. He's got a mandate. Let's make this work. And ever since then, it's just been a travesty. An ever-increasing travesty as he abandons all the promises he made to the membership and fails to offer an alternative to the government and fails to hold them to account. And I think it's 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 going to be damned by history what they did. And I am angry about it. And I'll keep being angry about it. Um, that's enough for me, I think. We've got lots of interviews uh, coming up. Uh, we also, we're going to work out what documentary we're going to do. Because we, our last documentary, people, we got a huge amount of great feedback from, which was about, we went to Hartlepool and, and you know, used that by-election to look at what's going on with the crisis of Labour generally. And... Um, we really you made that because that's a huge amount of time and resources and money because we pay our team union rates to make those. So that was thanks to you. So if you're supporting us on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84, we really appreciate uh, that support. You make it possible. Please do like if you're watching this live, like the YouTube video because that encourages more people, the algorithm to listen and, and watch it. Uh, and do subscribe, press the notification bell on the podcast. Do subscribe to our podcast. That's a massive chunk of our audience, of course. Um, and if you want to give us five stars, we appreciate it. Leave a review. That helps other people listen to it as well. Um, and uh, other than that, we've got loads coming up, as I've said. We really appreciate your support. I'm going to go go for a run, and then I'm going to go to James Butler's birthday. And then I've got my mum coming to stay, um, which is the first time she's come to stay since the pandemic began. So that'll be nice. I hope all of you are keeping well. And uh, we, as I've said, really appreciate your support for this channel with the brilliant experts that we have. Uh, We really appreciate it. Um, I hope you're all doing very well. Lots of love, everyone. Take care. See you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. 
I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. Help us decide who we talk to, what we talk about, the documentaries we do, uh, and also on the supporter function, uh, which you can see in the description. And leave us five stars and a review. It just helps other people listen. Uh, and with that, thank you so much. Speak soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.